building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On the Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. Just before we get into today's episode, we'd like to invite you to subscribe to our weekly devotional group. Just text the two words, Promise Keepers, to 31996. Every week you'll receive a challenging devotional that will inspire you to put your faith into action in the real world. Again, text Promise Keepers to 31996. Today we talk to the great Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North uh, from the United States Marine Corps, one of the true living American heroes of our day from his time in Vietnam to his time protecting Ronald Reagan in the 80s and now in his time as a war correspondent with Fox News and as a Christian leader. Oliver North. Well, Colonel North, this is a awesome privilege. We've known each other for a little while because we have mutual really close friends and especially in, in General Jerry Boykin. And uh, we've talked a lot, but I, I don't want to talk much during this because you got a lot to say. you got a lot of stories to tell. And would you just start off by telling us about your, your worst day of your life in 1968, 69? Worst day of my life is uh, July 28th, 1969. We were in a night defensive position west of Kantian, right along Mudders Ridge, just below the DMZ. And we'd set around with six tanks in each of the perimeter positions. And my infantry platoons in between every tank. And about, we'd have been at significant engagement that afternoon, put the tanks in the perimeter, fired, loaded with flechette rounds, and put my machine gun positions in where you could get interlocking. So non explosive rounds. Right. Which this is flechette round is, looks like a, a dart. Yeah. And it's very small. It's thousands of them every, every time the tank fires. These are 90 millimeter cannons on, mounted on an M60 tank. And the tank company commander, Mike Wunsch, is with us that night. It was, I think, four days before he was supposed to leave country. He'd been over there 13 months. He'd been a great company commander. He's a wonderful guy to work with. And somewhere around 2 o'clock in the morning, he rings on the tank infantry phone into the fighting position. I'm right beside his tank. Asked me to come on up, and so I climb up the back of the tank. He's looking through the starlight scope that's right in front of him, mounted on the cupola of the tank. And I look through and I can see lots of people moving toward us. So this is the old-fashioned night vision stuff. Oh, yeah. It's dark. You can see them. Yeah, it's about 40 pounds. It's about that long. It's about that big around. (laughs) And it's very grainy. I mean, the modern stuff that we've got today is phenomenal. And the next generation is going to be even more so. But this is the old, the very primitive night vision equipment. And I'm looking through the starlight scope and I can see all these guys very quietly creeping toward us. And as I turn to go alert all of rest of the riflemen that are around it, the rifle platoons. As I turn, an RPG hits the front of the cupola, glances up, and kills him. And if I had not been facing away, I would have been killed as well. It blew me off the back of the tank. I had little holes even in my ears. I had my helmet and my flak jacket on, so it protected my body. But the landing was hard, and I was unconscious for some time. But wake up as my machine gunner right next to the tank is dragging me by the flak jacket, to his fighting position. And he drops me in the bottom of his hole, about 6'3", good 215-pound Marine. And I'm there as coming to as his machine gun opens up. The battle went on for over 45 minutes, which is unusually long. And then they withdrew and then came back again just before dawn. 
the carnage was horrific. And I lost more Marines that night, killed and wounded, than I lost in all the entire rest of my tour or the other times that I've been in combat. And I look back at that and I say, one, thank you, Lord, that I'm still alive. Number two, thank you, Lord, that so many brave men did so much right. Young Randy Harrod was awarded a silver star that night, as was Captain Wunsch and, and several of others of these guys who were out there defending the rest of the perimeter. By the end of the night, we had all kinds of aircraft up firing all kinds of flares from illumination and artillery. The enemy withdrew in fairly good order, but they left a lot of their bodies around. And so at the end of the day, we ended up taking out the wounded first, then our dead, and then all the weapons that we collected, hundreds of pieces of ordnance, both ours and theirs in big nets, and then left two of the tanks really with thermite grenades in them so that the enemy could never use anything from the tank again. But I look back on that, that event as literally the worst day of my life and having some of my Marines die in my arms, not the kind of thing that you want to look back with any pleasure on. And so I look at those things and I say, what could I have done differently? And the answer is very simple. I should have put my listening post further up the hill because the listening post, one dead, one terribly wounded, they would have been more effective at alerting us. And probably before, not probably, but certainly before Captain once spotted the guy is about to attack us. And they attack with mortars, RPGs, machine guns, and of course, lots of AK-47s. I mean, you've been at the center of a lot of history. I mean, you did what I was reading about in history books when I was, when I was two when you had your worst day of your life, right? But I mean, you've been at the middle of history, and so you've had a lot of opportunities. Because I think, you know, this is promise keepers. A lot of guys look back on their lives with deep regrets. You have lived at the highest level of American history you get a chance to have lots of regrets. How do you deal with what you just said? Like, what could I have done differently on so many occasions? Well, I don't think it's healthy for anybody to play the game of shoulda, woulda, coulda. There's no winners in that one. And I think a lot of folks end up with PTS as a consequence, post-traumatic stress. And it doesn't You don't say be... the D because you, you're, not, you're not saying it's a no, disorder. No, I'm post-traumatic stress enabled, not disabled. There you go. Okay. And in large part, that's because I know where I'm going and I know why I'm going there. I know the end of the story. So I have great confidence. I, I tell people just exactly that. I say, how can you be so optimistic given all that's going on? I said, because I know the end of the story. I'm committed to that, right? I've, I've made a commitment to our family, my wife, our kids, our four kids, their mates, and my 18 grandkids. I, I look at those terrible events that happen to all of us. It doesn't have to be in combat. I mean, there, there's somebody getting run over right now by a tractor trailer somewhere in America. A terrible event's going on. If you or I evaporated this second, I know where I'm going because of what we just celebrated a few days ago. Amen. It's the resurrection, right? The most important day of Jesus' entire ministry is after he's been crucified. I mean, it's horrific what he endured. But resurrection is what we're all about. And, and my sense is that, that far too many men focus on the negatives in life instead of the positives. The good Lord does, Romans 8.28 is not a lie, mm. right? Romans 8.28 says in my Marine version, <laughs> the, the MIV version of the Bible, right? The Marine Infantry version. In the MIV, Romans 8.28 says, there's nothing in life going to happen to you as long as you stick with me that we're, everything's going to turn out okay, mm. right? That's Romans 8.28. And people forget the as long as you stick with me part. You know, yeah. people always like to quote the first part. For all things work together for good. For the, those for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. They forget Bingo. the second half. You got the whole thing. Yeah. Right. And you're absolutely right. And so 
I look at the various things that have happened, the surgeries I've had, the injuries I've had, uh, about with cancer. I look at those as strengthen me in what you give me, Lord, that I can be an example to others as to how a Christian man ought to behave, not just talk, but behave. And, and, that, and so Marines love a mission. Okay, my mission today is to show those 18 grandkids of ours, mm. right? How a Christian husband, father, grandfather, brother, son is supposed to behave. Not because I have to. I know where I'm going, right? It's because I want to. It's like my dad told my brothers and I. A lot of people are very concerned in today's life about what happens to a youngster who may or may not want to join the military. And it's what we call a legacy appointment or a legacy recruitment or a legacy uh, officer's program, because you knew somebody who behaved a certain way that you admired and you wanted to follow in their footsteps. I'm never going to be able to follow in Jesus' footsteps. Mm. I'm a frail, flawed sinner. Every day I screw up. Usually it's with something I say, meaning <laughs> it's probably better off not to talk, North. But the bottom line of it is, at the end of my days, I want, instead of all the medals and ribbons and combat and you know all, all the decorations that they give people for surviving in a war or those who don't survive, they'll put them on the back of those gravestones. You've seen some of those pictures out in the hallway. Mm. I want instead from Paul's second letter to Timothy, I want them to be able to say in the back of that, he showed me, one of the grandkids reading it, he showed me or showed us how to fight the good fight, how to finish the race and how to keep the faith, right? If I can accomplish that mission, I'll serve well. And, and I know that despite all the, the drama that's gone on and the, and the name calling and the likes, when I go, and we all will go, I'll go out the same way I came in with nothing. Therefore, accumulating lots of stuff in this life is not a necessary component. Oh, yes, it makes life more comfortable. But I don't have a golf club. I don't have a sailing boat. I'd love to be able to sail. I've always been blessed to be surrounded by people who are brighter, braver, and, and more effective than I am, right? One of whom owns a great sailboat. And so I'm taking a bunch of our grandkids out and taking them on that sailboat here in a few weeks just because I want to be able to show them how to sail. Show them, not tell them. Boats are always better that somebody else owns, by the way. Absolutely. In fact, you never know how many friends you've got until you own your own sailboat. <laughs> or pickup truck, as we say in Colorado. You got it. <laughs> you know, you you are going to have a lot of stuff when you die because you're going to have a lot of rewards in heaven. And, yeah. uh, I told you the first time I ever saw you, which is probably the most I mean, when most people first saw you, but I was walking in a friend's house in 1987. C-SPAN was on, and I saw you giving Congress the what for. I mean, no one had ever talked to Congress the way you did. But you were respectful, but you you put them in their place. And you were offered a chance to sell the president down the river. I mean, they, they tried to bribe you and you stood on your integrity. I mean, you're a man who's lived a life of courage that's just, just outstanding. You're an example of what it is to be a Christian, godly, courageous man that we, we all can aspire to, not just your grandkids. Well, but if I, if I accomplish the mission with them, that's most important. And, and look at what you guys are doing with promise keepers is very important. And I, I close off every one of my podcasts and every one of my radio appearances, of which I did several this morning, with people ask, I, I'll use my line, Semper Fidelis is more than a slogan for U.S. Marines. Always faithful 
is a way of life, mm. right? And then I'll say, pray for our country. Mm-hmm. I truly believe that prayers are answered. I mean, given all the things that we've been through, all the close calls, the near misses, the wounds, all that my wife has been put through. I mean, there's no other woman in America who's been told in modern times, get out of your house and go to some safe place because bad people are coming to kill you and your children. And I was on a trip with the Commandant of the Marine Corps when that happened. February 11th, 1987. Was that Kelly? Yeah, PX Kelly. I was on a trip with General Kelly. And when we got back to Andrews Air Force Base, I was called by the FBI and said, we've picked up Betsy and the kids. We're taking them to down to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and that's where you're going to hide out for a while because six terrorists that we knew about. Remember, I was the U.S. government's counterterrorism coordinator at the time. We knew that the People's Committee for Libyan Students was a terror cell in McLean, Virginia. And we knew when they sent the message in from, from Libya, ordering that cell to carry out the attack on target number 11. And as we discovered later on, they had already been to our house to do the reconnoitering. Wow. And the FBI, thankfully, intercepted it, came, took Betsy with Naval Intelligence Service guys, now called NCIS, but back then, Naval Intelligence Service, down to Camp Lejeune. I joined them down there. We hid down there for about 35 or 40 days. We had kids in school, needed to go to school. And so finally, Betsy put her foot down and said, we're going home. So they took us back, brought us back home eventually with, I think, 37 agents assigned to protect the family, which stayed with us for months and months. I will tell you one thing. They were great guys, terrific fellows. I've still got great friends who are part of that. But they do drink a lot of coffee. (laughs) Me too. The bottom line of that event was Betsy traumatized, if if she hadn't been a person of faith, traumatized by what had just transpired when they pulled out of the house. I mean, it was the middle of the night. Our youngest was in little Dr. Denton's with the footies and the the back flap on him. I mean, it's... I still wear those. But, yeah. Well, I mean, the, but if you, if you look at those kinds of things and say, this poor woman, is, she, she doesn't feel like a poor woman. She feels like, okay, it's different than most wives and, and, and mothers are put through, but it wasn't as bad as having a kid killed in a war, mm. right? And I've met a lot of those gold star moms. I mean, this, my foundation does a lot of that kind of stuff. I remember back in the Rodney King days when I was on the LAPD and... And I was one of the more notorious coppers down in, in the Watts Compton area. And I remember how many times I had to call my wife because uh, journalists and the FBI were trolling around and trying to hang anybody. It, was, it wasn't about justice. It was about people making a name for themselves. And uh, I remember how many times we were newly, we'd been let, married less than a year, like, don't, not, don't answer the door. You know, it, it was just terrible. What a terrible feeling to have to do. Different than what you guys went through. But our terrorists were reporters and we didn't like the FBI much back on the LAPD in those days. Well, I've got some great guys in, in both. Yeah, sure. Uh, and and, and a, a remarkable number of Marines with whom I went through basic training as a second, you know, butter bar, second lieutenant, came back from the war and went out to, because it's Quantico, went right out to the FBI Academy having completed their first or second combat tour. And a lot of those guys turned out to be great FBI agents. And how did you get from Annapolis to being a Marine? I mean, isn't that... Well, well, because you're... There's only a certain number of slots open for Marines, and they normally fill up before they get to the bottom of the class. But during the war, it was real easy because you had guys. You know, service selection occurs now in February. In our in our day, it was earlier, February of graduation year, and you go down and pick 
the branch of service you want to be in, your first duty station, the ship you want to be on. Maybe you're going to Pensacola to fly or, or in the Marines. Everybody's going to go through basic and they'll assign you an MOS coming out of basic training, TBS, the basic school at Quantico. And so I was guaranteed to get in the Marine and be a Marine officer because I'd been a Marine reservist. That's how I got my appointment to the oh, Naval Academy. I see. Okay. So I was guaranteed. So you so, wanted to be a Marine officer. Absolutely. And, and so when Rick Over called my name out, and I was not a nuclear physicist, but my roommate was, and he is a nuclear physicist, and he was a submariner, one of the very few submariners that ever commanded a diesel boat, a, 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 an attack boat, and a ballistic missile submarine. He's one of the very few. He's a genius. Wow. And, he, and he helped Frank Simmons and me get, graduate from the Naval Academy because we were both former enlisted. And Jay Cohen, I think, was given a, a waiver to get into the Naval Academy early. Normally, you have to be 18. I think he came in at 17. Because I think he's still the youngest graduate from our class. And he's still around. And so still a great friend. When you get out of Annapolis and you volunteer for the Marines, you know Vietnam's going on. Oh, I mean, yeah. you know you're going to be in the middle of it. Because the Marines were oh, no, the we, middle of, yeah. of 68, 69 were the two worst years of the war. I got there just before Thanksgiving of 1968. Wow. And uh, at the time, I think the, the casualty rate was something in the neighborhood of 38 or 39 dead a day, plus normally four or five times that in terms of wounded. And that was th the next to last year of the war. In fact, 3rd Marine Division pulled out as a unit uh, starting in October, November of 1969. And, and look, at the, the war, one of the reasons why you have so many youngsters they're not youngsters anymore, but so many graduates of the Vietnam War who are depressed is the outcome of the war, right? I mean, we, we lost dear friends. We lost guys we admired and some guys, you know, very dangerously broken. I mean, Tim Lee, who's a great spiritual friend of mine, as well as a personal friend, a Marine sergeant, both legs gone right at the hip mm. by, by a mine. Nowadays, we call them IEDs, improvised explosive devices. And you look at those kinds of injuries and those kinds of losses, and you say to yourself, for what? Mm -hmm. And it's largely because the Congress of the United States did what they did. Jerry Ford's president sends forward a bill. Congress already said no more military aid. Okay. And so when that bill hit his desk that December, it not only had no more military aid in it, it had no, mil no economic aid for the Vietnamese. And it was cut off. And on December 8th, he vetoed it, and Congress overrode his veto, and all aid was cut off at that point. And what happened is Ho Chi Minh wrote in his diary, we now know we have won the war, we just don't know exactly when. And of course, it's all over. By, by, by May, the following year, it's done. And, and that's one of the reasons why you have so many suicides among those who survived the war initially and are now looking back on it even today in their late 60s, early 70s, looking at it and saying, oh, dear, why live? And so uh, one of you and I were on the telephone a while back with Mike Corman, who saved my life in Vietnam, right? Jack Fowler. And, and Jack's a believer. Number two, he became an officer. He finished college when he came back, badly wounded that same night. Uh, when all of us were, the one I described back in the 28th of July, badly wounded. And came back, finished college, went to went to school, came back as a psychologist, and and headed that unit at Walter Reed, now now Walter Reed headed that unit at Navy Bethesda, treating guys with PTS and TBI, and he had both. Terrible wound in the head, 
and recover and, and save the lives of so many people afterwards, not just during the war, but afterwards. I mean, how does it now? Vietnam is a tourist destination. Yeah, that's got to be a weird feeling for you guys it's, that fought I, there. I've been back three times. Uh, I went uh, with a Christian mission in '93, right after Clinton normalized relations, and I went back twice for Fox. And yeah, I, it's, it's surreal the first time you go look back, and then you look at how badly uh, so many of them were hurt. And if you have any compassion left in your body at all, it's got to be for a little blind kid or a little kid who's lost a leg to a mine. Uh, and there's still a lot of mines all over the country. Is that but, right? Oh, yeah. But I, I checked the label this morning. This one was not made in, and this one's made in Indonesia. But the shirt I had on yesterday was made in Vietnam. And, and Vietnam is becoming an ally. It's a communist country. It's got a lot of problems, but they hate the Chinese almost as much as I do. Mm. The communist Chinese. Yeah. And, and the Vietnamese could turn out to be a very vital ally in standing up to the communist Chinese, which, in my humble opinion, is the greatest threat we face. So when we come back from this little break, I want to talk about the new book that you have coming out because, you know, veteran of Vietnam, but now you've done all this research on 20 years of war. I'm anxious to hear how that compares, how the vets are responding differently from your era and whatnot. So as soon as we come back from this break, let's talk about your new book. Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone. For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities, like Promise Keepers, by crafting customized, innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan, utilizing business interest, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org. As men, we're called to lead wherever God has placed us. Whether in your family, your work, your school, you have the God-given potential to transform lives and reach the world for Christ. That's why we'd like to encourage you to take the next step. Invest in your own personal growth this Father's Day weekend by registering for the Promise Keepers Men's Leadership Summit. This free one-hour leadership event features internationally renowned leadership expert John C. Maxwell, along with ministry-focused entrepreneurs David and Jason Benham and Pastor Nick Garza. It also includes a Q&A lightning round with special guests Chad Veach, Dat Wynn, Rocky Blyer, and David J. Harris. And the Leadership Summit is just the beginning. You'll also have the chance to participate in a 10-day leadership challenge on the Promise Keepers app that will help you build healthy habits of godly leadership. Your family, church, community, workplace, all need you to become the leader you were born to be. So join us on June 19th for this transformative event. Visit promisekeepers.org lead and reserve your spot today. Talking to Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, United States Marine Corps, 
What a great honor. And uh, you've got a new book that's yeah. just come out that I really want to hear about. Uh, this Two Marines, David Getch and I uh, interviewed over 500 veterans going all the way back to some of them in their, in their late 70s, early 80s, about what they had done for our country. And is this the America our heroes fought for, Veterans Lament? The sequel to this is coming out this summer. This book has been a, a remarkable coverage of what veterans are thinking about what's going on in our country. And there are those who are now saying to their kids, we talked a little bit about what we call legacy enlistments and recruitments. A legacy recruitment or enlistment means that they looked at somebody who had served before them, a dad, an uncle, a teacher, a coach, and said, I want to be like him or her, right? And so what, what's threatened is that continuity from generation to generation by having a sense that what I fought for is no longer the way I thought it was then. And, and to a certain extent, they're absolutely right. I mean, there are things happening in our country today that they comment upon. And when I say the America our heroes fought for, they're saying, how could we have riots in our streets all summer long before the election? This is before the election, right? And the kind of anarchy and the kind of extraordinary looting and arson that were occurring. And the number one targets, cops, about 40% of whom, as you know, are former military. Yes. And so you now have this whole effort to defund the police. It should be 100%, by the way. But. Well, but, <laughs> but, but the reality of it is we need those kinds of people serving our country who care enough to put their lives on the line and women who care enough about them that they're willing to be married to them, given the risks that they take every day. When we had the armor company here, and I, I talked to more than one wife of a cop, federal, state, local, sheriff's deputies, who said I, when he's on night duty, okay, given the violence that's occurring, and this is back when we were making armor, my patents are all in armor, right? I can't sleep until I hear the Velcro as he's coming in the door. You know what I'm talking oh, about, yeah. right? Because it makes a distinct, distinct as you rip open the, on the vest, the Velcro, you, it makes a decided noise that goes all the way up the stairs, and she's laying there in bed awake saying, thanking God that he got home. Mm. Anyway, these guys are the same kinds of people. And so are their mates. And, and so my concern is that if, if things don't change, if we don't depoliticize our military and encourage the spiritual relationship with our Lord and Savior, which I believe to be crucial to marriage, raising kids, all the kinds of things that you and I do all over the country, I believe that if we don't have that return to those spiritual roots of this country, we're in deep, serious trouble. Are you finding vets that are newer, younger guys, are they a lot different than before? Is there a worldview changing uh, with the different education that we're seeing yeah. now? And I, I will tell you this. I, I, go, I predate the end of the draft. So 1973 is the end of the draft in America. There are many people, I among them, that feel that when we were drafting, legitimately drafting people, conscripting them out of, the, out of civilian life, you had a far greater, far greater cross-section of America. Now, there were 16 and a half million men and women who served in World War II, and almost all of them were drafted, unless they were in the Marine Corps or, or what was then referred to as the Special Forces, but then it was called paratroopers. Or unless they're crazy enough to go through Annapolis and or, then choose the Marine well, Corps. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true, particularly in the middle of a war. 
if I look at the at the effect of the draft, it was to give a broader cross-section and open up the thinking of the American people when they came back. Tom Brokaw called them, my parents, the greatest generation, right? Mm-hmm. And they were. They, my parents were both born during World War I. They'd weathered the Great Depression and weathered World War II. And they came back and they built America. Mm-hmm. There's, not a, there's not a light bulb. There's not a, a tile. There's not a, a flagpole anywhere in America that wasn't started by one of that greatest generation, right? I mean, the whole idea of the, the remarkable industrial re-revolution that we ended up with in the 50s, how that generation ended up creating the baby boomers <laughs> who turned away from America is beyond me. I mean, think about this. On college campuses, this is, in the, this is part of the interviews from this book. On college campuses today, the guys who are teaching history or teaching philosophy or teaching wokeism or whatever the heck they call it, are the guys who were burning their draft cards when I was getting shot at in Vietnam. Right. And when you look at that, that's why they're legitimately asking the questions. Is this the country I fought for? Is it, is it worth doing again? Is it worth encouraging our kids to go off and put their own lives on the line? Just like the cops that you serve with, just like the Marines that I've covered, or the soldiers, sailors, airmen, guardsmen, Marines that I've covered in this war or, and been with. I've been blessed to be able to keep company with heroes all my life. My dad was the first hero I ever knew. All my brothers served in different branches of service, but we all served. And, and that's not because dad said, you've got to go do it. I, my dad asked me at some point, he said, what did, why did you do, join the Marines? He said, because I knew Russ Robertson, who was our high school uh, athletic director, who'd lost a leg in Guadalcanal as a U.S. Marine, invented with a shoe tree an artificial leg that he could go out there and beat anybody on the track team. <laughs> and I just looked up to him. All the teachers that I had as an elementary or high school student, and most in college, all of those male teachers had served in World War II, Korea, or both. And, as, and my brothers were the same way. So we went out, and, and Dad was right. You're not going to be told that you have to do this. You're going to want to do this. My concern is if we have enough people who don't understand the, the, the nature, the importance of this country, getting out and saying, you, you may want to do this kind of thing. We're in trouble. Yeah, and I think you answered, you know, one of the questions that we bring up all the time on this show, which is what happened? And I think you have the greatest generation that led to the baby boomers because they weren't diligently teaching their kids. They assumed that their good values, their biblical understanding was going to go to their kids, which it, it didn't. And if we're not actively, especially now, asking our kids, well, what did you learn in school today? What's going on? Well, let's see what the Bible says about that. Right. Let's just see what common sense. For, I mean, now we don't have to go to the Bible. We can just go to common sense. I mean, when they start saying that uh, you're whatever gender you want to be, really, that until you get pregnant, suddenly you realize, oh, I'm female. <laughs> it's not a choice. Well, the chromosomes are never going to change, <laughs> no, matter, no matter how many hormone shots they, they give these folks. And, and, of course, one of the things I – these guys are very concerned, these guys and gals that we interviewed in this. And now we're going back to more of them and asking the same kind of questions about socialism. Is this what you really want? And they're all thinking the same way. Is it for my kids and my grandkids? Is that what we really want? I don't think so. So, Ollie, what do we do, man? I mean, you've defended this country. You stood up for one of the greatest presidents in the history of this nation when you could have been comfortable and sold him down the river. You have stood at the... Uh, I forget who it was who said, there are moments in history where it takes a man to stand in the middle of the road and say, this far and no more. You've been one of those men. But we're at a point now 
where a lot of people are worried, if unless we have revival, and I do believe revival is coming, but unless we have revival, we will lose this country. When you look at what the young people now have been brainwashed and taught now, they're getting to be 25, 30 years old. And when you sit there and try to have a conversation with them, if you say to me, Ken, start acting like a man. Well, I know what you mean by that. And you know what you mean by that. Come on, 25-year-old doesn't know what you mean by that. What do we do? Well, one, we need pastors. We need pastors to, in their churches to lead their flocks. One of the reasons why this, this COVID thing has been so damaging to our country isn't just the fact that millions of people have been put out of work, many of whom will never be able to find new work. Mm. Not just that. They've been driven out of the churches. And quite frankly, there, there should have been a rebellion, here in Virginia particularly, there should have been a rebellion of every pastor in the, in the Commonwealth of Virginia saying, no, we are going to go to church. Okay? There, because of what's happened, I'll give you an example. I lost two very close friends right around Christmas. Both of them were guys who had worked for the CIA, with whom I had worked very closely when I was at the White House. They died within four days of each other, not of COVID. They died of complications of cancer. Hmm. In Virginia, we still have not had a ceremony for Joe Fernandez, who was not only a clandestine services officer and a station chief, he was my business partner here in this building, okay? Because the governor in our Commonwealth of Virginia forbids over a certain number of people being in a room called a church. In Maryland, where they've got a governor with common sense, there had to be hundreds of people at Bill Rooney's funeral. Mm. And, and people got up and talked and wept and laughed about a man who had a remarkable life, was a dear, dear friend, and a, a wonderful dad and a great husband. And he understood the word loyalty. And he was the station chief on Grenada when his last assignments, because he was shot down in the same helicopter as your friend and mine, Jerry Boykin. Really? Really. Yeah. And Jerry took a 50 cal machine gun bullet right through the torso. Yep. Who would have thought that Maryland would have a smarter governor than, than Virginia? I mean, there's something wrong with that. Well, no, no, but, but that's one of the ways America's changed. Mm. I, I hope, I, I know some people are campaigning for governor right now. I've endorsed one of them, Pete Snyder, who's a good friend. Is that right, Pete and, Snyder? And knows, and knows the Lord. And, and is going to do the right kinds of things that need to be done in Virginia. You know, Governor Hogan in Maryland has a lower mortality rate than Virginia. And you can go to church. Are there, is there a connection? I just point, I, you know, I don't know. I do know the outcome of all of it. I know the end of the story, right? You and I know that well. I'm not in any way saying we diminish the role of women because they got the toughest job in the world called mom. The men of this country need to man up. Yes. Okay. They need to be the kinds of people who can stand boldly in the middle of the road and say, stop. They should have stood up and done that here in the Commonwealth of Virginia when the governor said, nobody's going to church. And now, just now, over a year later, opening up the doors a few at a time. And there are some people who will never go back to church because it's gotten comfortable. You know, I, I can tell you right now, it's tough to organize 28 human beings. I was a you know, battalion operations officer. I can I can get people to move in one direction. Try that when you're herding the cats of you know the, the 18 grandkids and the 10 adults. Get them to church on time. Mm. It's worth doing. So I mean, you're a guy that's at high risk because your age, right? Yeah. And you're standing here saying, as you've always done throughout your whole life, let's man up and let's go. Yeah. And you know, I, I get lectured all the time. I mean, I have. I, story after story about pastors correcting me and telling me not to be so bold and t telling people, telling me to stop preaching that people need to repent. 
Yeah. And I always say, well, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll preach like Jesus preached. And he said, repent. And so there's grace, but there's also repentance. There's yeah. both. We, yeah. I, this morning, I, before you got here, first thing this morning, we had a Bible study group that's been meeting now for over 30 years. And the eight of us hunt together, we meet together, we pray together, we go to uh, celebrate various anniversaries and baptisms and all those kinds of things, weddings. And we've done doing it for 30 years. Some have come, some have gone, some new folks have joined. But that, that accountability group that we've got makes all the difference in the world in our lives, right? What, what I would like to see is a lot more of that. Oliver North. Thanks, brother. Thanks for listening to On the Edge podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting, and I want to tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization founded by Coach Bill McCartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Promise Keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership. To learn more and get involved in the mission of Promise Keepers, visit promisekeepers.org. Follow on social media or download the Promise Keepers app on Apple Store or Google Play by searching Promise Keepers. Through the Promise Keepers app, you'll receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, and other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On the Edge with Ken Harrison. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app.